0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Amanda Kennel, one of the hosts of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Alexa Alice Childen, author of Shakespeare and East Asia. This book examines a variety of filmic and theatrical adaptations of Shakespeare's plays related to East Asia. Jobin identifies a quartet of distinguishing characteristics amongst those adaptations produced after the 1950s, including innovations in form, the use of Shakespeare to critique society, the questioning of gender roles, and the international circulation of not only Shakespeare's plays, but also the East Asian adaptations of those plays. The book carefully attends to cultural and political differences between the various nations of East Asia, while also proffering an energetic comparison of adaptations produced and distributed across Japan, South Korea, China, Singapore, and Taiwan. Alexa Alice Jobin, welcome to the show. Thank you, Amanda.
1: It's my honor to
0: be here. (laughs) I wonder if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself.
1: Hi everyone, my name is Alexa. I teach and live in Washington D.C. I'm originally from Taiwan and this book captures my research interest but also reflects my passion for travel and a bit of my personal life. I immigrated to the U.S. and while studying in London I met my then boyfriend um, who is French. And so now we have family across the Pacific and across the Atlantic. Um, I attended to Shakespeare and East Asian works. Now, rather than Shakespeare in East Asia, uh, partly because of my own background, because I noticed a lot of Asian style performances, they don't necessarily come out of Asia, per se for example, Asian American theater. So I was fascinated by by all of that, by the fluidity, by the mobility of these texts. At George Washington University, I teach primarily in the English department, though I'm affiliated with women's gender and sexuality studies, international affairs, and East Asian languages and literatures. I work on questions about race, gender, sexuality and globalization, um, particularly interesting adaptations of Shakespeare, but I also teach film, theater, East Asian and Sinopharm cultures. And at MIT, I founded, uh, co-founded Global Shakespeare. This is a digital archive of performances of Shakespeare from all over the world. Uh, a lot of them have subtitles, Um, Again, that grew out of my personal archive and collection, and now it's a major open access resource for students, teachers, and anyone who's curious about Shakespeare's fate around the globe.
0: That's fascinating. I mean, you've clearly been involved with um, Shakespeare in a variety of ways, and the Global Shakespeare's Project is is fascinating, and I'd love to hear more about it. But how did all of that sort of turn into this book, Shakespeare and East Asia?
1: So there are a large number of adaptations and performances that a lot of people do not know about. Akira Kurosawa from Japan, of course, is now a canonical film director, not just in Shakespeare studies, but in world cinema in general. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. Since the 19th century, stage and film directors have mounted hundreds and hundreds of adaptations drawn on East Asian motifs. And by the late 20th century, Shakespeare had become one of the most frequently adapted playwrights on stage, on screen, on television, in Japanese manga, and, and that's throughout, throughout East Asia. But also in the West, directors are setting... Resetting Shakespeare's plays to, to East Asian motifs, yes, white actors, but East Asian motifs, the most famous is Kenneth Branagh, he did it as you like it, um, in a Japanese landscape, it's the Irish-British director's Jap- Japanese dream. Right. So all of that, you can already see where I'm headed. So much material, so little work, so little research. And that really brought me to this project. It it was years in the making because I had to delve into each of the countries that Amanda mentioned earlier. And I looked at how gender roles have changed, how racial identities have changed in all of these adaptations. Uh, In the process I hope I made a contribution to post-colonial studies and globalization studies because these are difficult to study. Globalization is difficult to study empirically because the so-called evidence is really organized along uh, individual countries rather than across borders. So cross-border data or what, like we call regional data is widely available, but not organized or difficult to classify. So I hope Asian Shakespeare's would give us a category that we we can use to develop a site-specific vocabulary to talk about globalization, to talk about influences, right, beyond statistics or beyond sporadic kind of um, anecdotes. Cross-cultural adaptations can make us do more self-reflection right? Think about our viewpoints, our assumptions. So this self-reflexivity promotes an awareness of of, of how we talk about difference. And and that's my discovery in the book, or what I call theatricalization of difference. Uh, When you perform difference, you're actually theatricalizing, kind of dramatizing specific points of differences. And and, and so adaptations, I discovered, are productive in the sense that they, they generate these new views, they generate self-reflexivity. Um, they also make us ask new questions about new Western canon and the Western canon and the Asian canon and how they interact.
0: It's really fascinating to think about that. I remember when I first heard the title of your book, Shakespeare and East Asia, it immediately made me think about the, just switching that one word, the difference between Shakespeare and East Asia and Shakespeare in East Asia. And I think you really just pointed to it because you're talking about works that totally circulate outside of Asia. You're talking about works that are produced outside of Asia but uh, involve people from Asia or intentionally draw on Asian cultures. Um, But in particular, in that, that first category, uh, Asian adaptations that circulate outside of Asia, um, there, have, there have been tons of uh, Asian adaptations of Shakespeare and uh, Shakespeare's plays, but two Japanese adapters in particular, Minagawa Yukio and Kurosawa Akira, um, stand out for their influence on both Shakespearean studies and the larger media in which they work, um, with Minagawa being, of course, uh, working in the theater and uh, Kurosawa being a filmmaker. Um, so how do their Shakespearean adaptations compare exactly?
1: That's an excellent question. And I, wish I shall return to the question of the book title as well. In fact, Minagawa and Kurosawa very much capture uh, uh, my curiosity and what you're curious about. Why Shakespeare and East Asia? Yes, those two, um, they they are based in Japan. They are ethnically Japanese, but it would be a stretch to say that their works are representatively Japanese. In fact, both will take offense if we say that. They are like, but no, I'm Minagawa. This is my signature. Maybe you might see some of it as Japanese, but that's my personal artistic achievement. So that's kind of what I see as a typical struggle of Asian artists in the West, and like to kind of box them in and say, here's a typical example of Japanese theater that, Maybe partially true, but I think no artists like to be profiled as such. They'd rather that we appreciate them as a master of their particular art form, their signature shots, you know, their moves and all of that. So uh Kurosawa, as many people know, uh has been regarded as somewhat foreign within Japan. Uh, his name is famously rendered in uh Katakana is, is a form of translator, transliteration for foreign names, even though, of course, his name uh, is also in Japanese, kan- Japanese kanji. That just says something about his aesthetics, his engagement, even when he shoots a samurai films. That seem to be between cultures. I find that beautiful, but some people may be troubled and think that's fall through the, falling through the cracks. Um in rendering Shakespeare's Macbeth into a samurai world, his uh throne of blood is both Japanese and Kurosawan, and it's also uh, a hybrid form of cultural expression as he borrows freely from modern atonal music as well as uh as well as Japanese no drama. So Minagawa and Kurosawa, they actually, there they are resonances between their approaches. Minagawa occasionally, as I write about in chapter one, takes a somewhat cinematic approach to his epic staging, would use um, semi-translucent screen, for example, have characters dance behind it, um, his Macbeth with cherry blossom, Is has mesmerized the West since 1985. Um, After he passed away, New York's Lincoln Center restaged that Cherry Blossom Macbeth with the original cast. Uh, And in the end, at the end of the show, they had huge photo of Ninagawa on stage using that production to pay tribute to the master who had just passed away that was a few years ago um, and and so that's an that's a wonderful example of cinematic meta cinematic theater and kurosawa as well has theatrical elements like in his throne of blood where where lady macbeth and macbeth um, discuss their plan to kill the the king to usurp uh, uh, Lady Asagi moves as if she's a no-character on stage, but that's inside a cinema. So I find the the resonances between Ninagawa and Kurosawa could be described as meta-cinematic stage versus meta-theatrical cinema. And it's fascinating. Ninagawa actually is influenced by some of Kurosawa's work. And so if you set them side by side, as I do in chapter one, looking at their Macbeth, you can begin to see the influences. I'm not saying that they are alike, but if you look closely, you can see um, how those intra-regional influences, their language, they don't always reroute through Shakespeare the master, but rather, From other Asian sources, from each other, and I find that beautiful. So it's not a one way street, but more like a spider web with many directions.
0: It's a fascinating way of uh, using Throne of Blood, um, you know, because it's uh, Japanese title literally translates to spider thread castle or spider web castle. Exactly, yes. it works so perfectly for how he, as a metaphor, that is for how he pulls together these different influences in a way that makes us uh, think about the media, the medium in which he is working. Which I have to say, I've seen that film, of course, many times. Um, but some of the things that you point to, like the um, the uh, music and uh, the, I believe it was the flutes, for thr- or, or the flutes oh yes, the
1: the flute, yes. Very high-pitched.
0: I had never realized that until I, I was reading your book and I, I thought, oh, wait a minute. I can almost hear it now. Like The <laughs> way that it comes to mind as soon as you point it out um, is absolutely brilliant.
1: Speaking of webs, mm. right? Mm. Um, Throne of Blood, for anyone who's seen it, um, I think one of the scenes that leaves a deep impression is the beginning, the mountain spirit. So... Macbeth and Banquo, they they gallop through thick, dense woods that look like like spiders' webs, and then they come across this creature in the forest who seems to be spinning. Uh, uh doing doing it it's a form of domestic labor, except the mountain spirit doesn't really spin. Um it doesn't move the thread from one wheel to the other. It's simply just the futile motion as gives this chant about futility of human endeavors, right? And so the spirit doesn't twist together a thread of fiber, and and the otherwise productive domestic labor is emptied out. It doesn't have any Meaning, so it's a, a ritual. Uh, maybe that's to say my Macbeth pursuits are insubstantial. But interestingly, in the Japanese context, for listeners who are proficient, um the the uh, the idea of spiders' webs, right, in, in the film's title and the web and the spinning, the 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 wheel of fortune, perhaps they really come together here because the visual uh Device, framing device for entrapment, uh, refers to refers to ito, uh, which means thread. You see the spirit doing the ito, the thread. Um, the thread is homophonous with the word for intention, right? Also ito or design or a scheme, um, even treasonous act, treasonous intent, right? Someone who is prepared to betray his nation. And all of that is actually, all of these um, are homophonous, all of them Ito. So from the simple Ito thread, you can see all this developing. Um, of course, when I first watched the film, it didn't occur to me. But once I thought of the thread as Ito, I realized, oh, wow, that's, that's quite ingenious. It's just a, a simple stroke. Kurosawa gave us all of these layers.
0: It rather parallels the idea of um, good intentions paving the the road to hell, right?
1: Right. right, All these different intentions
0: (laughs) weave together to create, well, something rather tragic in Macbeth, unfortunately. Um, But of course, Shakespearean adaptations, uh, they aren't just about either Shakespeare or the medium and uh, sort of artists critique or uh, highlighting of the medium in which they appear. Um, how have artists used uh, Shakespearean adaptations to critique their societies?
1: Yeah, thank you for, for this question. Shakespeare, like other canonical works, they have historically been given uh, been given a moral burden in that they seem more morally superior, or it's some kind of lighthouse right? It comes down to the idea of reading literature, especially canonical works, will make you a better person. So the, the idea has a long history. It's not new and Shakespeare's It's not unique. But um, I've discovered in chapter two, sign off on artists, some of them have signed on to the idea. It's called uh, remediation or social reparation in that performing Shakespeare. Not only uh, improves their personal situations, but could help the audiences um, see the world in a new light and become a a better person. So it's kind of a straightforward idea of social reparation. But also, the artists see the authority of Shakespeare accepted in many parts of the world as something that can help them revive revive their performance genre, Right, maybe maybe they, they work in a declining genre, no no new audiences, so they want to use this kind of new works to attract new audiences or perhaps to re- renovate to kind of infuse some new ideas, such as Western style, typically Shakespearean um, psychologically based characterization, into uh, Beijing opera. For example, so that's another form of reparation. But then, but then, of course, there are people who are more cynical. So, yet another level of reparation. They are making fun of the investment in social reparation. They're saying there's no such thing, even if it's Shakespeare. So Shakespeare doesn't always come to rescue. So they stage parodies, they stage comedies about this theme. Um, typically, they will show a struggling. So these are meta meta plays again. Like I said before, it's, it could be a film, it could be a stage work, um, and in these stories, there would be a struggling theatre company or some actors. They try to put out Shakespeare to the best of their effort, but it invariably fails. Um, or perhaps there's high expectation Shakespeare will come to rescue, and yet he doesn't. Uh, in chapter four, when I deal with Singapore film, I return to the idea as well. It's a brilliant comedy, I highly recommend. So what are some of these examples? Um, so let me start with the more straightforward remediation. That is Feng Xiaogang's um, martial arts film, The Banquet. It's a brilliant adaptation of Hamlet. It came out in 2006. There's also a Tibetan film. It's quite a gem. It's f- is shot in Tibet with a Tibetan cast entirely in a Tibetan language and it's called the Prince of the Himalayas so these are examples of the the more straightforward reparation kind of social reparation with this with a straight face they offer a corrective to Shakespeare for example Ophelia Hamlet's beloved it's a very much a silenced character in, in in Shakespeare and in most western performances she doesn't get to talk dies mysteriously just miserable Here, in in Feng's The Banquet, Ophelia has more of a voice. She doesn't have to go mad to speak her mind. In fact, she doesn't go mad. Um, She doesn't hand out flowers. Um, Significantly, in a world where every character is versed in swordsmanship, they all fly through the air, Ophelia, or qing nui, um, which means uh, snowy girl, um, signifying purity, so it's an interesting name to give her. Ophelia in The Banquet is the only one not versed in swordsmanship, as if her insistence on um, um, moral purity inhibits her from taking up the craft. Um, she does sing, she does sing, but I love her her agency, the, the the moral agency given to this character. So that's a kind of reparation, right, to, to offer a modern feminist reading of a silent shakespearean female character prince of the himalayas does something quite similar as well um, that ophelia even gives birth to to, to a baby of hers and Hamlet's the baby floats away to a new life um, perhaps breaking the cycle of revenge and it's brilliant now i did promise you some uh, reparation with a wink and and uh there's this stage play from taiwan that's probably the most famous play in the sinophone world is called shamu which is uh, which means shamlet it's a sham and it's a word play on shash for shakespeare the shah and hamlet hamlet so shamu shamlet and you probably know where this is headed. It's a comedy. It's a troupe really struggling. Um, they couldn't even get the play, the title of the play the station right. It's supposed to be Hamlet, but it's Shamlet. Only halfway through did they say, hey, I think it's not Shamlet. It should have been Hamlet, I heard. And so on. Uh, they keep failing. There are a lot of scripted mishaps. The ghost doesn't ascend on the wire to go up. You know, ghost is stranded on the stage, so interrupting. in all the subsequent scenes. And it's just quite brilliant, right? Because the troupe invests so much in, if we do, Shamlet, oh, sorry, well, Shamlet or Hamlet, uh, we can revive our troupe because they're doing bad financially and so on. Um, I find it quite witty, right? A culture has to come to a certain level of appreciation of its own stagecraft, of Shakespeare, whether that familiarity with Shakespeare's manufacture or not, right? Uh, I think parody is such a great way to go, especially in presenting tragedy. And then, and then on screen, there's the brilliant uh, uh uh film from Hong Kong. This is 1980s, and it's called One Husband Too Many. Highly recommended, Anthony Chang. It's a it's a must. So what do they do? In there, again, it's struggling true. They try to stage Romeo and Juliet. Um, not only Shakespeare is at stake here because they they um Reproduce the costumes. They even use the same soundtrack, "A Time for Us." All of them from the famous Italian director Franco Zeffirelli's *Romeo and Juliet*. So it's lampooning both Shakespeare's canonicity and Zeffirelli's then canonical film. Um, and they fail because their audiences in a Hong Kong village fail to appreciate the the awkward Western play. For them, *Romeo and Juliet* doesn't make sense. And that might as well be. So I love these works that create distance within within their, their narrative universe, but also for us. Suddenly, um, you know, we, we are we are forced to take some distance and rethink the so-called greatest love story uh, in the world. Perhaps it's not so great after all if you pause and think about its cultural logic. These are... Uh...
0: Before we uh, head on, I I want to take a moment because uh, the listing of the the films reminded me, I uh, wanted to make sure our listeners know that um, if you look for the global Shakespeare's project that you mentioned earlier, um, there are um, various materials available that you can view. Um, So if some of these projects uh, sound uh, like you would really enjoy spending a little bit of time watching Shamlet, for example. please do go ahead and look that up as well, because it's hilarious, right? Um, Thank you. Yes.
1: I'll send link for everyone. It's um, shakespeares.org. That's plural. Just no space in shakespeares.org.
0: And I think one thing worth pointing out, though, as you talk about them, you know, as we move toward the parodies and then even the final one that you mentioned, the the villagers might not appreciate Romeo and Juliet, but you can't make films like that or, or like uh, the play uh, Shamlet unless you really have a very deep understanding of not just Shakespeare's plays, but also other adaptations of them like the Zaffarelli film that you mentioned. Um, So there is this very wide and deep body of knowledge that people are uh, working with when they adapt um, Asia. And, you spoke a little bit um, about Ophelia, but I, I know you mentioned her in a couple of different chapters, and I wondered if you could just talk a little bit more about her because she's such a fascinating character, and people have done such interesting things with her.
1: Absolutely. Um, so I think I think uh, when it comes to cultural familiarity with certain kind of stories, right, we need to understand that it doesn't involve people sitting down and reading through the play word for word to. attains uh, familiarity. In fact, in English-speaking countries, in the U.S., for example, uh, people tend to claim cultural ownership of something like Shakespeare because English is their native language, even if they don't speak Elizabethan English. Uh, But that is merely as an assumption. The, The canon, Shakespeare, or otherwise, they tend to circulate in culture, in global cultures, in fragmented forms. People see uh, the iconic image of a man holding a skull, that's Hamlet, you know, that kind of thing. But how many people have actually read Hamlet uh, uh, cover to cover? That doesn't mean that there's no cultural familiarity with it. I think that's very much the case in East Asia as well. They're working with all of these um, pop culture representations, Zephi Raleigh, um, that's before that's Lerman's Romeo plus Julia came out in late nineteen nineties, right? So in the nineteen eighties context, they really was the thing. It, it was truly a global phenomenon, and and so it's no surprise that they would use that as a, a point of reference in terms of in terms of Western conception of love at first sight, um, impulse. Uh, perhaps the penalty for youthful exuberance, and contrast that with local East Asian understanding of similar types of narratives. Um, Yes, can you remind me at the end of your question? You can cut this part.
0: I was just thinking about Ophelia. um, You you spoke about her in in one context, but there are quite a few fascinating adaptations that involve her.
1: Oh, very much. Ophelia is quite a symbol. As I said, discovered as much in East Asia as she is in Western cultures. Uh, in Anglophone cultures, I've discovered uh, multiple uses of the name Ophelia to, uh, f- in feminist contexts like this Ophelia group, because Ophelia signals a kind of silenced victimhood. So, um. there's there's a group offering psychotherapies actually using Ophelia in that name. Uh, In South Korea, as I mentioned in chapter three of my book, uh, South Korean feminism, both academic um, and activist, they have zeroed in on the figure of Ophelia a lot of the adaptations, they recast Ophelia as a shaman who serves as a medium to counsel the dead and guide the living. I find that just such a powerful form of expression, not just uh, not just a ghost re- returning for revenge, perhaps. You see that in, in Japanese adaptation, but actually taking a role of guiding the living. Female shamans in the Korean context, uh, they exist outside the Confucian social structure, they have greater agency. Um, shamans are is a the shaman is a complex term. Uh, for those who don't happen to be familiar, they are not equivalent of the witches in the West. They um they they are uh, they are spiritual. They 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 play this role of teacher and 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 a guide. So these female shamans, they 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 are more free because they're outside of the Confucian order. And inspired by political and academic feminism, uh, Korean adaptations use Ophelia to rethink the position of Korean women in society. Now, even though Ophelia is often presented as a feminist symbol, ophelia the figure has also been site of gender struggle i discovered a korean transgender film called the king and the clown it's actually quite a big deal 2005 um, and you. Uh, it grossed far more than the titanic in south korea so it's quite phenomenal this film depicts uh, the erotic entanglement among a king and two acrobatic street performers there's the macho jang song who plays male role and there's actually a trans woman named gongji gongji is the ophelia in the film so this transgender ophelia shares personality personality traits with Hamlet's love interest, Ophelia, in Shakespeare. Both of them cannot quite express themselves and their life is determined by men around them. So this is a Korean period drama. The transgender Ophelia here actually draws on the local culture of flower boys. This is prevalent in Japan and Korea. The term refers to male identifying singer or actor known for their use of makeup and mannerisms that are considered socially to be feminine, and they have a lot of female fans. Uh, anthropologists have studied the fan culture here and uh, come to the conclusion that the female fans live vicariously through androgynous characters like the flower boys without fear of being stigmatized as being promiscuous. So the fans desire. Are rather complex. The Fans may have lesbian tendencies, or maybe they are simply desiring ideal heterosexual men who really exist in reality, and therefore the flower boys kind fill of in a gap. Of uh, for those of you with background in Renaissance studies, I, I think you can hear the resonances here between flower boys and Renaissance boy actors in Shakespeare's England, where women were prohibited from performing on the professional stage, and so out of shaped female characters, including Ophelia, were actually played by the so-called boy actors, apprentices who trained from a young age, and before their voice voices broke, they, um, they, they were casting female roles. In, in that movie, The King and the Clown, the Ophelia figure looks quite docile, uh, and yet she's so empowered. And I think this is a typical east asian way of presenting female empowerment not necessarily talking over someone else or being uh, uh, physically dominant and yet she's simply just very sure of herself and 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 so the transgender ophilia against the favor of the king but there's a scene that's really interesting a courtesan a courtesan becomes very, very jealous, right? Um, and so the courtesan storms in when the king is intimate with with Ophelia and 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 tries and starts undressing Ophelia. So the courtesan wants to know the, quote, truth underneath. Perhaps it's to up the ante to, to tell the king, you know, that's not a, quote, real girl, perhaps. Um, with the, with the wrong equipment um, and all of that is actually these are typical tropes you will find in transgender films the, the great reveal the investment in some kind of indexical truth of anatomy and so on it's a brilliant film it's simultaneously Shakespearean um, and and deeply Korean in its feminist expressions
0: I mean it's it's particularly fascinating to think about that one Um, In relation to a phrase uh, you used in the book that I found really lovely, which was um, the idea of the artistically constructed parallel, um, which you used to talk about how we as audience members understand Shakespearean um, adaptations, where artists are uh, building in parallels between Shakespeare's plays and Asian cultures through, uh, for example, you mentioned the the flower boy uh, concept, and that one too reminded me of uh, the trope of uh, girls with flowers in their hair in Korean cinema, um, where the the girls who have who do have flowers in their hair on screen in Korean cinema often, um, unfortunately, undergo some sort of mental uh, breakdown <laughs> that is somewhat reminiscent, perhaps, of uh, what's going it's on. It's amazing, in, yeah, right. Right, Um, right. (laughs) So, what are some of the other ways that artists have built parallels between Shakespeare's plays and Asian cultures?
1: So, uh, the parallels I discovered, uh, and this is in Chapter Three, which largely focuses on Korea, but also, uh, but also touring theatre. That's why my book is titled uh, Shakespeare and East Asia, because it's not necessarily inside. Maybe it's from East Asia, maybe it's inspired by East Asian dynamics, and this includes Western directors as well. Um, And there are a lot of East Asian works that actually tour to the West, they're actually built to tour from the ground up um, in order to promote the theatre company of the Korean culture, or the the local culture. so this applies uh, especially aptly to works that are designed to tour. So from grounds up, they, they, they've been looking for parallels. Some of the parallels I discovered are are, um, are not artificially created. They've been, they, they exist prior to Shakespeare's arrival. Let me tell you a story. So obviously, Shakespeare's King Lear, a story about, a, f- a father who makes bad decisions and his tense relationships with his three daughters. When I talked to my Korean students, they immediately said, wow, that's uh, that's an adaptation. King Lear is an adaptation of traditional Korean narrative. One of the example is Samgung Mubonpuri. Uh, it's a it's a shamanistic uh, ritual cycle, and the story is from Jeju Island. That's amazing. Except the parallels they predate Shakespeare. It, it's it's just there. Um. One day, uh, an aging couple calls in their three daughters, one by one, to ask them to whom they owe their good fortune. their happy lives. The first and second daughters answer that they owe their happiness to their parents. Uh, The answer pleases their parents. The third daughter is more honest and says that they owe their good fortune to heaven Um, and she gets thrown out by her parents. One day, so, so she gets dispossessed, one day The parents trip on the door sill and lose their eyesight. In in the fall, they become beggars and end up um, end up at the feet of the youngest daughter who who's been thrown out. The daughter forgives her parents and provides for them. She becomes Um, a shaman, a a goddess of destiny. So it's a beautiful story of redemption. The daughter is always ready to forgive. Um, And you can begin to hear the parallel here. The daughter, of course, is such a Cordelia figure from King Lear. So that may be accidental or or kind of historically pre-existing. But when the National Theater of Korea tried to stage and adaptation of King Lear they got inspired by that shaman narrative and fuse and they fused the two stories together so it's not a case of localizing Shakespeare's King Lear giving King Lear um, and the three daughters some some Korean names but rather on the surface so it depends on your your playgoing habits your cultural backgrounds when you go to this play called King uru you may see resonances of Shakespeare King Lear You may hear resonances of the Korean shaman legend, or maybe both. Um, And that's a beautiful thing, because this is a hybrid product. um, Whichever approach you take, there's no right or wrong answers, and it's a work with multiple layers and many different echoes. So that's just one way how artists identify parallels and then create some bridges.
0: And that kind of polyphony um really comes in, we've mentioned a few times that you aren't just talking about uh, you know, a, a film made in Asia for Asian audiences or a play made in Asia for Asian audiences, you're, you are talking about how these works move through in particular uh, film and theater festivals, um, but around the world. And how do audiences um, understand the adaptations that you're, you're talking about as they move through those different um settings
1: yes i i think reception is always an issue right there no no one no one has 300 degree view there's always there's always something that stands out for us then there will always be something we miss especially in intercultural works and touring works but that's also the beauty of what i call aberrant decoding so the Uh, we decode a work with a lot of gaps. We we cannot have the full vision, but it's not a defect. It's simply simply an existing condition when it comes to cross-cultural exchange. Uh, Ninagawa's Macbeth mixes Kabuki-style witches and... A rather unkabuki kabuki-like vocal work, especially the Lady Macbeth, and he has Christian, um, and Buddhist symbols. Um, has Foges, uses fohres. Uh, uh, uses uses for his music and a hybrid acting style. There's also cinematic blocking. So how do you understand a work like this? Um, a, a lot of Japanese and British audiences. They gravitate toward the cherry blossoms. But even, even the cherry blossoms mean different things to different people. For those who happen to be familiar with the Japanese tradition, that's actually a symbol of death. For Western critics, it's achingly beautiful. Um, the kind of minus the death concept, right? Dialogue with the death concept. And so in the in in Tokyo, the production somehow, because of the cultural hybridity, is smacked of accidentalism. But then Ninagawa was uh, was accused of Orientalism when on tour in Britain. That's just different viewpoints. The production has so many different meanings since its premiere in 1980 in Tokyo, um, and it has been nicknamed the Cherry Blossom Macbeth for 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 decades. Um, so. Some people, even Japanese, some some Japanese directors are critical of Ninagawa, saying, "Oh, he has a tendency to pander to the penchant for exoticism, while um some of his some of the elements, right, the combination of Christian and Buddhist symbols, that's actually exotic for exotic for his local Japanese audiences as well, and that's by design because he wanted to create distance rather than just." immersing people in what they take for granted Um, that's of course very often missed uh, by critics of uh, cross-cultural studies they tend to uh, gravitate toward a more black and white picture it's either orientalism or occidentalism it's pandering selling out like an ethnic night out but i think the truth is somewhere more complex in a gray area in between inagawa of course is an exceptional example because because he's probably half british because toward the latter half of his career he tours to to London, to, to the U.K. every single year. There's a, there's, a, there's a company in London specifically handling Minagawa tours. It's just an amazing industry. So how do you characterize someone like this? Is is still Japanese or maybe just making Japanese British art?
0: Mm-hmm. There's a degree at which things start to get oversimplified, certainly. Um, but in, on the flip side, um, I think it's really sort of... Um, intriguing or, or maybe energetic the way if you think about it when we watch these kinds of productions we do have a percentage of the background knowledge uh, because these are very layered materials that you're working with and so you if you learn just a little more it can really change how you view the production I remember um, because I am in Japanese studies when I first saw Ninagawa's Gawa's uh, Cherry Blossom Macbeth <laughs> Um, I saw that cherry blossom tree and it, it's, it, I don't know that uh, you mentioned it. That thing is giant, right? It, it takes up the whole. It, it's huge. Um... Yes.
1: And, and uh, the petals keep falling.
0: Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind so of hanging, beautiful. looming over things. And I looked at that uh-huh. and I saw, oh, uh-huh. death. Uh-huh. Yes, absolutely. Uh, but it was only when I, you know, heard other people in the audience because this was not in Japan. Uh, and when they were talking about it and they were, oh, it's so beautiful. And I was sitting there thinking, it's death. This is definitely a sign of the death <laughs> that is coming. Um, so there is quite a bit uh, there is quite a bit of uh, layering, and on to that end, um, you point out that Shakespeare more often arrived in East Asian nations through adaptations that were made in other East Asian nations. Um, and how does that sort of distinguish East Asia's reception of Shakespeare from um, other uh, regions?
1: So um, I, I covered this quite briefly in the book, but I think it's an important distinction. So different parts of East Asia, China, for example, um, of the er- um, early 20th century initially uh, acquired uh, a taste for Shakespeare through Japanese translations, thanks to um, Chinese intellectuals who studied in Japan, among them most famous, such as Lu Xun. And um, later on, under the communist rule in the mid 20th century, it's the Soviet influence. Uh, That's also partly because of Soviet uh, Union's Love of Shakespeare as an example of Marxist proletarian literature. I know some of this um, rather unintuitive, but that's how things are. And so there's a lot of Soviet influence in Chinese staging. So Shakespeare, there's no Englishness in it. Japan as well, and Korea, very indirect roots. Um, and that's where I think it's appropriate for us to go back to the sp- spider web metaphor. Right. It's not a one way street from England uh, being down to different parts of the world. And for the early audiences, well, even 20th century audiences, they don't necessarily associate Shakespeare with Britishness or the British Empire. Um, In Hong Kong, Shakespeare wasn't resisted as much as he was in colonial India. For example, it's not quite a symbol of of colonial imposition. Shakespeare is simply usefully foreign um, as 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 a as a third party material for various local purposes. And um, um, let me. Okay, you might have to cut a bit of this for. For Korea, for example, um, there the the artist's relationship to Shakespeare again is not necessarily defined by colonialism. If the only colonialism we can speak of would be the Japanese imposition and occupation of Korea, and that's again where Shakespeare comes in as quote usefully foreign, because because Shakespeare is not Japanese. So you can see how um, Hong Kong's fraught relationship, even between 1997 to Chinese authoritarian rule, would lead to the idea of kind of, a, a, of Shakespeare as a third-party presence, even if Hong Kong was under British rule. The threat of perceived right, cultural affiliation with mainland China, seems far more worrisome. Japanization is a real threat to Koreans who lived through Japanese colonization. And so it's more urgent than whatever British and Shakespeare might represent. So the anxieties definitely have distinct local flavors. And globalization doesn't always mean something negative.
0: Hmm. You, you certainly um, painted a picture where people are intentionally globalizing almost in a defensive way. Um, where they reach out to in this case Britain as a way of fending off perhaps uh, in other cases because they're
1: reacting they're busy reacting to something else right and and so people tend to think of anglicization or globalization as something negative but not always It depends on which location Um, and Shakespeare doesn't always come in as something that's deeply associated with their empire
0: Um, But for today, thank you for uh, speaking with me and I hope you have a lovely day.